0: then with a little bit of, of intention and effort and just you know basic discipline of habits, um, we can also wield incredible power of of formation and development um, of just of just intentionally trying to to do things in our families and our homes and our domestic spheres um, that are that are faith based that are faith practices. It doesn't need to be I don't think uh, wild or exotic, but I think it does need to be intentional. It needs to be regular, uh, whatever that is.
1: I'm joined uh, today by AJ Colt, who I'm excited to be able to have a conversation with. He is the pastor of Theological Training at Lakewood Baptist Church in Gainesville, Georgia, Uh, but previously he was a professor at Mallian College in Australia, and he is the author of a book for many of you that might be familiar, because we just did a series called Invited to Know God, um, which if you haven't grabbed a copy of that, please come talk to me, I can get you a copy uh, of that. Uh, But also uh, he's written another book uh, called Memoir of Moses. Uh, which is a, on a on a similar topic that uh, we're going to be talking about uh, today. He's also written a book that may or may not be called "Puzzling Portraits." Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, AJ, thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh,
0: thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so we are we just finished up, as I said, uh, a series called "Invited to Know God," which is based mm. on on your book, and and one of the things that you talk a lot about is the idea of of collective memory and what is uh, collective memory. Now, I had no idea until uh, I looked at your work about collective memory. I was just wondering if you could just kind of give a really brief summary uh, of what is uh, collective memory.
0: Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, So collective memory itself was a term coined by a French sociologist in 1925. His name was Maurice Albax. And um, basically what he began to try to point out was that um, despite kind of this popular assumption that memories are strictly stored in the human mind and are only individual property, for lack of a better term, um, that, that actually they're socially formed or socially framed. And so um, while all of our memories, obviously our own memories, um, and they, they reside in our mind, um, they actually, in the first place, are all socially framed or conditioned. Um, and so the opposite is also true, And therefore, that uh, the societies we live in in some ways either accidentally or intentionally shape the memories that we hold. Um, and you know, I mean, I think a good example that I often use is um, 9-11. Um, so if you're, if you're an American, un, uh, you know, to remember 9-11, uh, even for those who actually weren't alive during it, um, is to uh, think of something remember something in your own mind that is part of your national identity. And so people will use language like we us our when referring to that but of course someone say in Africa um, who witnessed it maybe on the news uh, witnessed it live as well but they won't use the language of we us our it'll be it'll be something like they them theirs and so that in itself is already showing that that memories that we hold individually are actually uh, collective or social in nature
1: right so so basically everybody has a, a collective memory there we are part of a, a community part of a culture and and in a way we've been discipled into into that way of being without even realizing it really is that kind of what you're what you're saying
0: exactly yeah
1: yeah okay yeah so then like when it comes to say as christians how we then live in a world that is i suppose in a way has its own collective memory like say nine eleven or or you know whether you're in ireland and events that happened here or whatever like you're brought into these cultural stories these defining moments um like, how, how then, as Christians, does this idea of collective memory, I suppose, also speak to how, as Christians, we are, we are formed?
0: Yeah, and, and that is the key question for, for not only Christians, but all humans, because I think you're right. Once you realize that, that memories are communal in nature, um, and that they're not just individual property, so to speak— um, the question then is, well, what shapes our, our memories? What shapes our identities? And that gets to exactly the question you're talking about, is that um, if if our groups, our communities can shape our memories, well, then the question is, well, how do we shape them? Uh, you know, what kind of things do we use to shape them? Um, and so for Christians, um, obviously, then we get to the point of, well, what ought to be a Christian uh, self-identity, a Christian memory? And that, again, leads us to the the question then, well, you know what what things are Christian, what things are not, and and how do we form those in our people, in our communities?
1: Yeah, so I guess then I guess the next the next question would then be how, because I know again you, you this is something you've worked on, whether that's mm-hmm. uh, whether memoir of Moses or invited to know uh, invited to know God uh, in a way of uh, how as Christians we, or as people really in general, it's probably not just as Christians, but how we mm-hmm. form or become the people that we are, how collective memory is, I suppose, instilled into us. Uh, I don't know if you wanna, wanna speak uh, a little bit uh, to, to that. Um, I suppose, I know you have, uh, I guess what I'm getting at, and I should be, be clear, it's, it's just, I think your, your vectors of, of memory uh, that, you, that you talk about, if you, if you would be willing just to kind of share with us about those vectors of memory.
0: Yeah, great. So I essentially the stuff we just talked about. I applied this to the book of Deuteronomy um, because De- Deuteronomy. Just to take a step back. Um, is is kind of a it's a unique book in all of Scripture um, because what it what it finds is we in the book we find the people of Israel about to enter the Promised Land after wandering for forty years, being led out of Egypt. Um, well, they're going to do so without their great leader and shepherd, Moses. He's going to die before they enter the land. So the question on Moses' mind is, well, how do I leave the people with something that'll help them to stay faithful in my absence? Um, they, they didn't do it terribly well in his presence, and in his absence, he's even more afraid. So um, Deuteronomy itself is a kind of a sermon or, you know, you call it a variety of things, but at the very least, it's Moses' swan song, his last, his last message to his people about how to remain faithful in his absence. And as such, he... Uh, emphasizes memory, commands memory even, um, which is something unique to Deuteronomy. No other book in the Bible does this. gives gives memory such a focus, such an emphasis, such a a command. Um, And what he does, um, I argue in in my works, is that he seems to implement three basic um, vectors of memory, and that is song, story, and ritual. Um, And so basically story, you know, it has parents telling children and um, when they ask, why do we do all these these things, these, you know, these laws and why do we keep all these things? Why do we celebrate all these things? Why do we do this? Um, and there's and they're told you are to tell your children, you know, at one time we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought. It, and so it goes down to, you know, retelling of the Exodus story. And so basically what it does is it tries to invite each new generation of children into that ancient story. Um, and so again, creating them a kind of autobiographical memory of something that actually they never experienced, which is extraordinary to talk about, and we can talk about that more too if you like. But um, so there's there's a uh, so there's story to begin with. That's the first one we find. And There's ritual. Um, you know, the people are commanded to at least three times a year celebrate three annual hey. pilgrimage festivals where they all come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Um, but scholars have pointed out that these things are not just kind of you know random things. These three. Uh, Rituals over the course of a year essentially reenact the Exodus journey all over again through the wilderness into the Promised Land, and so in celebrating these things, which again culminates in worship, um, they are again uh, reliving, rehearsing, uh, rebringing in each new generation into this ancient Exodus story, again with the with the purpose of helping people uh, self-identify with things that they'd never experienced. And then finally, the song is the same kind of thing. It, they all have different layers, different things that they do, but the song does something similar. Um, but maybe in, instead of uh, like the ritual is kind of embodied memory and the, the story is kind of imploded memory or plotting people's memory, song is what I said um, is emoting. That is that it's it's infusing all these things, same identity, same story, same... Uh, ritual, but it's, in, it's infusing all of them with, uh, with a deep emotion, a love for the Lord, and a sorrow about their own sin, this kind of stuff. So all these things work together, doing the same thing, uh, inviting people into the same story, but they layer it differently, doing different things to the human memory involved.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's like, I I find this so, so interesting. Um, And one of the things that we're talking about then is, is the idea of of story and and specifically looking at being invited into the story and how we become, um, I guess, participants in the story. So so you were saying, you said we could come back around to it. So I want to, um, uh, just about how this was these were things that they never participated in. Could you kind of just, mm-hmm. just talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, great. So um, one of the most fascinating things to me about social memory and individual memory is that all cultures, all religions that are successful and survive um, will essentially learn to bridge um, group memories with um, individual memories. That is, they will learn ways in which um, they will create, in essence, uh, a kind of pseudo um, autobiographical memory in, in in for future generations. Um, and so, but and, and so this sounds all kind of like hocus pocus and very um, technical. But it's in some ways it's not because you think about it, sports fans, right? Like, so if you you know if you are a Yankees fan or something, that, you know, in American baseball, or um, it's probably where you're at, I assume rugby, or you know maybe uh, football. Yeah. Rugby um, or football, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so. Um, in Australia, it's uh, AFL uh, and rugby and soccer. And, uh, so there's all these things that are these very, uh, you know, historic sports. And you'll hear people uh, like my, I have a 10-year-old son. You'll hear him talking about, we won this in that year, like, you know, 50 years before he was ever born, right? And so anyway, so all successful communities find ways of embedding memories in each future generations um, that they never actually experienced, but that are, that are vital to understanding the identity of that group of people. And so religions are no different, and it's especially true of the Judeo-Christian faith um, because it's a historic faith that doesn't believe it can repeat events magically or, you know, some kind of, in some kind of, you know, uh, ritual way. Um, but it does believe that for a people to be, for instance, faithful to Christ, they have to in some way um, participate in his death and resurrection. And we do that through, again, Easter and Good Friday and also through, the, you know, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, depends which tradition you're from. And so these things um, find ways in which that they actually uh, hardwire our brains in some ways. that They're not false memories. We don't come to think of ourselves literally as standing in the exodus or at the Lord's resurrection. But we do come uh, to identify with those events as our own, as our, part of our own autobiography. Um, and that's, it's just an extraordinary thing to think about, I think.
1: Yeah, no, it is. And, and you know, as, as I think about this too, I think about the book of Acts, um, would you say that like Deuteronomy and Acts function in a similar in a similar thing to invite us into this this story of, of the church? You know, we weren't. I mean, obviously, you bring up the Lord's Supper. The Gospels, I think, are a great example, a great example of that, and and taking communion um, or the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, whichever. Yeah, again, like you say, whichever word you prefer yeah. um, there. But uh, but also like the Book of Acts. At least it seems to me does a similar thing to Deuteronomy in that it invites us, although it doesn't command us to tell the story, uh, it does invite mm-hmm. us into the story of the church, uh, the birth of the church, which I, I feel like maybe in a way we're, we're invited to to see ourselves at, in as a part of. Um, I don't know. Am I, am I totally off base on that?
0: That's great. I think you're right. I mean, because a lot of times scholars will um, compare Deuteronomy with the Gospel of John because both of them are kind of— um, Oh, I don't know. Mature reflections on the past events, you know. Um, but I think you're right in the sense of of memory and the birth of a new generation that will become, kind of, in some ways, the the identity of all future generations of of believers. Um, I think Acts is, you're right, a better parallel to Deuteronomy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's one of those. As I look at, like, say, Acts chapter Acts chapter four, and and you see how the early church committed themselves to each other, or Acts chapter two, you know, where they focused on prayer and the breaking of bread and and all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's like. I wasn't there, but I can look at that and say, yeah. Oh, okay. I can see that as an example, as a, as, a, as a pattern, maybe again, depending on my tradition, how, uh, how I, I'm, you know, I see that as authoritative or not. Um, mm-hmm. but, but in some sense I'm still being in, invited to see myself as a part of that church to see myself in what they're doing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, this, I, I digress there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so so again, like coming back to story, that's I want to come back to story again, mm. and and just kind of ask the question then as Christians now, uh, you know Deuteronomy again commands, as you were saying, to tell the story, commands mm. uh, commands them to tell their children, or you know, um, again it, it seems like it, it should be something constantly on on their minds, constantly on their thoughts. Um, what are like what are some ways then as, as Christians that we can um, participate in being storytellers um, or, or people who know the story?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think in a lot of ways to begin with, it's um, it's kind of a, a, there's a twin, you know, kind of a twin cord, a twin thread to this cord, I should say. Um, and that on the one hand, I think obviously the the major, um, co- you know, components of, of the Christian faith, you know, that telling the story of, of God's defining redemptive work, um, and like you're saying, um, regardless of your theological tradition, you, there are certain things we all agree that is still ongoing, right? God's character, God's work, our own responsibilities, and just to tell those things again, the Lord's Supper. Um, I I often give my own um, my own church here, which, as he said, is Baptistic in its tradition, um, a hard time because you know we're very clear. There's only you know there's only two. We wouldn't call them sacraments, but there's only two sacraments, you know, and then. And uh, so there's baptism, there's Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is so important that we, at best, celebrate it quarterly. Even the <laughs> Lord commanded, we celebrate it, you know, every time. And I'm like, it's just, you know, anyway, so I like I like to push buttons. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of these funny things, though, right? But the, the reality is, though, um, if the Lord's Supper is really important, then uh, maybe, again, on the faith side of things, we should actually um, celebrate and tell why we celebrate that more often. In fact, I just had a woman two weeks ago email me, and um, she had... Um, stumbled upon my work as well and wanted to know my thoughts about why, um, you know, kind of all these questions, great questions about like why a lot of Christians are drawn to celebrate Passovers with Jews um, just to kind of experience this stuff. And um, and one of my um, <laughs> views on that is that they do it because the Jews are still doing essentially what Scripture uh, taught in that regard and that they're they are they're not just celebrating the Passover, but hardwired into that is telling why we celebrate the Passover, right? So yeah. they do this over and over and there's, there's great power in it. Whereas for whatever reason, most Christian traditions um, have lost that, that inherent exposition of, of the rite, of the ritual. Um, so you don't actually hear, usually, most, again, in most traditions, it's not true of all, um, but you don't actually hear very much about why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And often we kind of do it begrudgingly in most, at least, Protestant traditions. Um, but if we just simply, I believe, told the story while celebrating the rite, um i think there's great great power in that so that's kind of the, the communal side of things i think the personal side of things is that um you know if you have children or if you have friends of the faith or you're just around a meal around a drink whatever just sharing about the lord's work in your own life i think evangelicals we've often done it kind of in a corny way you know it's become programmatic and formulaic yeah. but i think really there still is great power when you run a, run upon someone that you maybe don't know their story and they begin to tell you their story about how is they came to faith or how they maybe had a faith experience. And there's just, there's endlessly great power in those things. So I personally think just those two things, hardwiring it into our um, our community structures and our community, you know, uh, celebrations and, and worship services, and then just um, kind of hardwiring it into our, our normal patterns of, of speaking to and with each other.
1: Yeah. And so like, I, I suppose like in a way then that starts with hardwiring it hard there, if I can say the word hardwiring it into ourselves um, yeah you know it's interesting uh joel green uh, talks about in, in his commentary on first peter you know he comes to that passage that talks about being ready to give a defense for your for your faith mm. and he's like this is not just you know some sort of apologetics you know be ready mm. with the kalam cosmological argument or, or something but <laughs> oh, is that is that ever effective but anyway sorry go on I, right we could that's that's another podcast or another uh, another <laughs> conversation there um but no, like it was one of those like it really struck me. But he because he says no, it's it's being ready to tell the story of Jesus, it's being mm-hmm. prepared to tell the story of Jesus. And again, coming back to the Book of Acts, that's precisely what you see when guys are mm-hmm. questioned, when, when the apostles are questioned, they tell the story of of Jesus. And, and so, uh, I was thinking about that, and and there was something that you said in in your book memoir of Moses that really um, stuck out to me. It was something that when I read it, it just, it it hit me, um, that you said that, uh, the very purpose of scripture is to produce a world for the faithful to live in. Um, Mm. and, and I guess in my mind, what I'm mulling over is how might that change the way that we approach the reading of scripture, this idea of Mm. story and inviting people into the story and, and of knowing Mm. the story ourselves, like, um, and even there, seeing scripture as, you know, like in, in the way that, that you described there, like how might that change the way that, that we read the Bible?
0: Mm, yeah, and that's, that is a great question. I think that is, for me over the years, that, that exact question is the one that continues to give me a, a kind of holy haunting, um, because I think it's, um, it's so important for, for all of Christianity for all times, but especially today. Um, coming out of this kind of modernist uh, enlightenment um, you know phases of of history, um because I think we've we've essentially, I think forgotten what the Bible is. and um and then I think bef- because of that, we've forgotten what the Bible was actually written for. Um, and I think when we we begin to answer those things rightly again, we get back to what you're talking about. And like, well, what what is the Bible? Well, Christians have long you know held again, uh, various uh, stripes and forms and colors of this, but the Bible is the Word of God. It is the voice of God, right? And it's like, well, what's it for? Well, and and this is where I think guys like, for me anyways, guys like Richard Briggs or Kevin Van Hooser have been really helpful. Like Richard Briggs talks about um, how scripture is essentially, therefore, a summons to come and present ourselves before God in in his living word and to listen to him. Um, and so, again, you begin to see, like you're talking about, this, it, when you talk about these things, it, it suddenly is like a world we're invited into. It's, uh, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, Chronicles of Narnia and all that. And it is kind of like a, a scripture becomes like a wardrobe into God's presence. Like, it's not just this thing that we that we set down on the table and, you know, we, and we keep it at, the, at a distance. It's actually a, a living place of encounter with, with the living word of God. Um, and then Kevin Van Hooser talks about how, well, what's the purpose of scripture? He's like, the ultimate purpose is covenanting to bring us into covenant relationship with the living God of creation. Um, and if that's true, then I think a lot of the ways in which we read scripture just probably aren't very helpful, <laughs> um, you know? And so I, I think, and that that I think opens the door to all manner of things. Um, I think for instance, um, just some concrete examples. So for, for one, a lot of our churches, again, especially I'm speaking from my own tradition, which is broadly evangelical, um, you know, we focus so much on this expositional sermon. So we'll, sometimes some churches will give a 50-minute uh, exposition of Scripture. Um, but that exposition is so important that we'll actually truncate or cut out altogether the very reading of Scripture, like in the public, um, which, again, I find extraordinary. Anyways, that's another, that's another uh, rant from the other day. Um, and a lot of time, and again, our time in, um, in, in more um, liturgical churches uh, in England, um, Anglican, you know, we live there. Um, I think we learned to appreciate that there was folks who would put a great deal of effort into just reading scripture You know very beautifully and well you can tell they had practice and even that the, the the beautiful Uh reading of scripture in public uh, stuff like that. I think invite invites people into it Um, then there's everything else too. There's all there's other forms of uh, Scripture reading like dramatic scripture reading or sacred scripture reading that we you know like Ignatian spirituality uh, but I think um, I think one of the main ways for both pastors, uh, professionals and just folks um, who are trying to read their Bible to to stay faithful daily mm-hmm. is just to really read it slowly and just ask questions. you know and and I think you know when we start to do that, you'll notice stuff that you never noticed before and just and it invites you into the story. um you know you're reading through the Gospels and you'll think, I never noticed that before I wonder why that happens and just and just sit there and make yourself kind of one of the people in the crowd around Jesus right because um anyway so that that was a long-winded way to say I think there's a lot of ways that we can become more curious and more open to it but I think it starts with understanding what it is and that is it's again it's a it's a wardrobe into the living presence of God first and foremost
1: yeah, I I love that. I love that you you know the wardrobe. You know that that idea. Um, as somebody who is a fan of the the Chronicles of Narnia, like that that it resonates with my imagination um, there. And and then even there talking about Kevin Van Hooser, um Now I don't anticipate that most people. Uh, listening to this probably know Kevin Van Hooser but he was somebody again who's who I've I've really I've learned so much from it and learned a lot reading and and I'm glad you bring him up because he talks about in in his book pictures at a theological exhibition um he talks about this idea of of he he, he comes to Ephesians chapter one and where Paul prays that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians would be open and, and he actually goes this is this is about the imagination this is about the imagination to be able to see how big and how how incredible God is and the salvation that He has given to us is like how magnificent mm. it is that and and He says that when Paul uses that term eyes he's he's talking about the imagination sparking the imagination and, mm. and I know in in Memoir of Moses uh, you talk about that motif that runs throughout the book of Deuteronomy of of the eyes. Mm. Um, do you see that as like, in a similar way, Deuteronomy doing a similar thing as it uses that motif of, of the eyes uh, as what Van Hooser is talking about that Paul's doing in Ephesians?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I have to admit, that particular work of Van Hooser's I haven't read, and so I don't, I don't know the particulars of his view. Uh, but I, I will say this. I think, um, I think the whole eyes motif throughout Scripture um, when we find it and again i this is a future project so i don't have the details to support it but um but i think what we find uh, with this idea when it talks about eyes is essentially a play on the very first chapter first three chapters of genesis and that is the idea that um uh, we in the biblical world view we are the living images of god you know god doesn't have a, an image of stone or of metal or of wood he has living images that's us and so we um Kind of in contrast to the images that were ha- that had to by priests in the ancient world be made al- made alive, you know, through the opening of their eyes and ears and mouth ceremony, um, we already are those things. But we have to use our our um, our sensory faculties correctly in order to to image God. And I think it, so. So in some ways, it comes back to that. Well, how do we use our eyes to image God? And I think I think um, what Van Hooser is saying. Um, sounds like it, it's probably similar to what I see in Deuteronomy and throughout scripture. And that is, there is, first of all, there is a world that goes on beyond our basic sight. We, you know, that is one of the great testimonies of scripture. Um, we find this in the Elisha and the Elijah narratives that, um, that actually there are things going on that our eyes can't see, but that people with, uh, certain kinds of eyes that is prophets can see. So I think, I think that's the first kind of step in understanding that. Um, but the second is, um, yeah, I think this idea of imagination, um, because I think imagination is related to biblical hope. And that is that, um, you know, obscene beyond uh, the current circumstances and, and basically um, imitating God well and believing his promises to be true, even when we can't see them, but we can imagine them kind
1: of yeah. idea. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, in, it's interesting because I just think that maybe and maybe I'm, I'm reading too much of my own experience mm-hmm into this but that's that as protestants or evangelicals we tend to when we start hearing the word reading the bible and imagination it starts to go like well hold on now we might be getting mm-hmm. a little too mystical here or, or something <laughs> but right. but but that actually engaging our imagination when we read scripture like we would like we would read any narrative mm-hmm. is is important and powerful in in our understanding of scripture rather than trying to read it as dryly and as possible you know that that maybe even as we read scripture, uh, it wouldn't be a, a duty, but it but a choice and a joy mm-hmm. as we imagine ourselves in the story, see ourselves in the story, and that then what Peter talks about in First Peter, it becomes natural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it becomes the mm-hmm. it just becomes the overflow of our hearts, and and mm-hmm. out of our mouth here here it comes. Um, mm-hmm. But I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit to to kind of like the habits like that we see in Deuteronomy six. I mean. Mm-hmm obviously i i don't see a phylactery on your head um so i assume you don't take that you know like uh, Mm um you know that that we're to you know all of a sudden tie things to our head and to our arms and and, um Mm -hmm. but if you could just speak maybe to to that idea of habit and how like habits like prayer or um taking a sabbath or you know the spiritual disciplines in general like how they form and shape uh, who we who we become?
0: Yeah, and that's a great question. Here, um, let me read this in length. The whole thing in length. Um, it's I love this Annie Dillard quote. Um, she says, "Quote: How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days." It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at a, at a sec, section at a time. A schedule is a mock-up of reason and order, willed, faked, and so brought a being. It is a peace and a haven, haven set into the wreck of time. It is a lifeboat on which you find yourself, decades later, still living. And I think this is a great quote because it tells us just broadly <clears throat> why habits, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, religious or not, are, are actually the building blocks of, of what our trajectory as a human being is. Um, and so, and a lot of us, um, I think we all have habits. Um, it's just that a lot of us probably haven't um, set our habits. We haven't thought about them. Um, and so, you know, basically like a good police officer can tell you what your habits are, right? Because they're trained to recognize patterns in people's behaviors and social patterns. Um, but again, so the question is if those are the things that make up our lives, if those are the things that make us who we are long term, um, and we can control that by, by like Annie Dillard said, by essentially creating a net or a scaffolding for our future, um, then we should. <laughs> then we should, right? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so the ones you bring up are great. Um, yeah, I mean, because Deuteronomy, again, is, is really concerned with the domestic sphere, um, with parents basically daily teaching kids about, um, you know, the, the basis of the entire covenant relationship. Um, some people say, well, you know, this is about teaching the kids the law, and therefore, as Christians, we don't follow the law. It's like, that's not it, though. I mean, it's what it's about is teaching kids the is essence of the law, which is the same as the essence of the New Testament. That is, you know, to love God fully, right? Yeah. And, um, and so it's like that um, is what they're teaching their kids as they get up, as they lie down, as they walk. Um, and so the habits are ways in which um, they remember to do those things, and they do it well and faithfully. And so... Um, yeah, yeah, we, as you said, we don't need to uh, imitate the particulars necessarily. Uh, we don't need to write things on our wall in Hebrew. Uh, it may not be helpful for, for as many of us as if we did. Um, but um, but I think, again, the, the, the whole intent of it is, is as, as we've been talking about, to build a scaffolding for our days, for our lives that makes us better, more faithful image bearers of Christ. And so, um, you, you know, you named three big ones, right? So, Sabbath. Um, and again, the the whole point of Sabbath in the Old Testament. Um, I think it's you know a lot of people will say a lot of things about Sabbath, and a lot of those things are really helpful. But I think at the basis, um, in an agrarian culture um, where you know work was basically life and, and work was food, right? Um, to to not work was to essentially uh, recognize or demarcate this day as the Lord's day. That is to say that um, that God is God, and I am not. I am His creature, and I depend on Him every day and so it's it's the most in a lot of ways it's actually the most self-giving um trusting act of worship that we find in all of the old testament um because to set, a, set aside a seventh of your week for, for you know for worship is a big deal um and so today again it looks different we all you know do it differently um a lot of us sit on our, our buns all day long and so uh, maybe sitting for another day isn't healthy for us so we need to recreate in other ways um and there's particulars there that again i, I realize we won't won't have time to get into those but but Still, to set aside our day is, I think, the most um, basic and profound act of worship. To recognize God as God and us as His creatures, His servants, um, you know. And then you you talked about prayer, um, and I always have to chuckle because you know, prayer comes up a lot, and and I'm really mm-hmm. bad at praying. Like as far as like it's like it's one of these things. Like a lot of spiritual disciplines come easier to some than others. Right. Um, I love study, contemplation, reflection. Um, the Sabbath, actually, um, you know, when when I began to learn about it and implement it. It came fairly naturally. Um, <laughs> but prayer is still a difficult one for me. Um, yeah. but, but one thing really changed how I view prayer, um, and that is just simply meditating on the, the Lord's Prayer, His instruction there. And there's just a couple of key words in this whole idea of, he says, basically, you are to ask God or to pray, um, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And I remember one time when it suddenly occurred to me, I'm like, he's essentially saying that in the chaos of this broken world, of this mortal realm, by praying, we essentially open this, this little doorway into the divine realm, even for a moment in which God's light can, can spill forth and we can be changed and returned to this mortal, broken world a little bit more like him. And for me, that was a really helpful thing, a really helpful thing. It's not just going to God with a list of things. I mean, although God, you know, invites us to ask him things, but, but it's, it's, it's actually opening a... a little doorway a little sliver into the divine realm so that its light falls into the mortal realm
1: oh i love that thanks Man, thanks for that yeah that's yeah i i, I sorry I, i'm just like taking in what you just said there on a prayer that's really good um
0: yeah.
1: yeah and and even there like what you were saying on on sabbath like i know for my family like you know i didn't grow up taking zero Sabbath, like Sunday was the day we came home and you know, immediately after church we watched American football and uh you know that, yes. was, that was pretty much the day, you know, like uh mm-hmm. and uh and yeah, I mean that was the closest thing we did to to a Sabbath, like growing up. Um but like actually being very intentional now in mm-hmm. our family about about taking that. Like I mean I it's the day I look forward to most. Mm-hmm. You know, like we we make sure we have enough leftovers to eat. We do you know all mm-hmm. of these things where it's like we can actually just be with each other mm, and mm. and we can, you know, we can sing a hymn together. We can worship God. And, you know, we, we do Sundays our, ourselves. So, so even there, like we can worship God in our community, we can come home, we can, we can still worship God together and spend time together. And, and yeah, mm. like it's one of those things where, you know, I've heard John Mark Comer say, you know, whether or not, oh, yeah. yeah, whether or not <laughs> it's still, uh, you know, a requirement or not, doesn't really matter. Like it's a gift. Why not take mm, it, you know? Mm. And, and, uh, Yeah. And I just really quickly want to kind of come back around as, as somebody with, you know, three boys and, and here, you know, by the time this comes out, I'll probably have two girls. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Like, um, you know, that idea of like so much of it centers so much of Deuteronomy six, so much of Deuteronomy centers around the habits of of the domestic sphere. Mm. Um, I, I was just wondering if you could kind of just speak to in your mind, why, why you think Deuteronomy takes that so seriously and, and, and why we should take that so seriously as well, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, um, interestingly, I think you can look around the ancient world um, and, and see why it's taken so seriously. I mean, some will say, well, there's just a family culture back then, and that's, but that's true. But Plato saw so much power in the nuclear family that he thought that those who didn't have a good nuclear family were disadvantaged. And therefore, and this is a real thing, you look it up, he, he actually wanted to dismember family life as we know it, so that everyone could be equally uh, disadvantaged. <laughs> I mean, that's not how he said it. But, um, and so, but I think the opposite is also true and that he was right in his basic observation that the that the nuclear family um, is so wildly influential and important. Um, and really, that's why counselors exist, right? Because they're helping all of us deal with issues from our nuclear family. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I mean, I joke, but my counseling friends would be like, well, that's actually no. That's
1: yeah, bad. yeah, um, I feel like, yeah, you're not far off there. Yeah, yeah
0: and, and so... The, the point, though, is that because then with a little bit of, of intention and effort and just, you know, basic discipline of habits, um, we can also wield incredible power of, of formation and development um, of, just, of just intentionally trying to, to do things in our families and our homes and our domestic spheres um, that, are, that are faith-based, that are faith practices. It doesn't need to be, I don't think, uh, wild or exotic, but I think it does need to be intentional. It needs to be regular. Uh, whatever that is,
1: yeah, it's one of those. I suppose, like that, that we're all being discipled. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of into what. That's um, right, and and so I, I suppose you know all of us to a degree, and I think I th- I think I could be wrong on this, but Dallas Willard um, talks a lot about. I, I'm pretty mm. sure it's Dallas Willard anyway that talks a lot about about this idea that that essentially mm. we're being unintentionally formed, that we've all mm-hmm. been uh, to a degree. Without thinking about it, we've been formed into somebody, and and uh, now that I'm thinking about it, it might be James K. Smith. It might be both. Um, (laughs) It's one of those. Yeah. Okay. I'll probably have to edit this a bit, but in any case, uh, it's that it's that idea of like we're becoming someone, and and either either it's intentional or it's unintentional who we're becoming, and that was like Mm -hmm. one of the things that really struck me in in I think coming back around and reading Deuteronomy i feel like after reading your work i went back to deuteronomy because it was you know it's probably a book i can't remember the last time prior to that that i had read deuteronomy you know and coming back to it and being like how did i not see all of this here Mm -hmm. um and that i think is like one of the beauties of studying the old testament really is just Mm -hmm. like finding all of this you know we could get into whether andy stanley what he really meant when he said unhitch the old testament but i think a lot (laughs) of people you know that's again that's probably a whole nother conversation but a lot of people I think kind of live with, live with that idea of like eh, the old testament that's not really relevant to me anymore mm. and yet you come back to these books and you see that mm-hmm. they recognized the the draw of idolatry the draw of of sin you mm. know the draw of chasing after other things of of looking to other things um where only god really is the one who who deserves our attention and our worship and our and mm. you know and to center our lives on on him and and so it was one of those for me like reading Deuteronomy 6 in that way it uh, was, was just a really powerful moment to to me just saying like look you know it's right there thousands mm-hmm. of years ago you know mm-hmm. like like that was already seen as like you know what if you're not forming your children somebody else will mm-hmm. um, you know the culture around us is, is powerful uh, but I just kind of wanted to I suppose leave the last word um, with you if there's anything i guess that you kind of maybe wanted to say or were you know on this idea of Mm -hmm. formation and and how we become you know whatever it is i suppose like i I just kind of Mm -hmm. wanted to give you give you the last the last word uh on that if there's anything else you wanted to add
0: yeah i think um i think in your email that you sent one of the questions um that you asked um was you know basically just generally how going forward um you know do we Set up our individual lives and our communal lives to do this, and I, and I think the thing that I, you know, tell folks all the time, and it's it's weird how provocative this this I think very common sense um, answer is in today's world. Um, but so I'll share it here, and that is simply um, do less, not more, in this world. Um, set up a hierarchy of priorities, and and learn or and come to believe truly, which is the God's honest truth that. A person can completely waste their life doing good things but not the best things for them Mm -hmm. um and um and so learn to learn to set up the best things for you and your family and prioritize those and learn to say no um which makes you really unpopular with moms and dads and grandparents and friends and co-workers um but i just think we need to become ruthless about um uh, just about uh, now, now I can't get the the ruthless elimination of Hurry John Mark Comer out of my head. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. But, yeah, <laughs> no, does, yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I enjoy himself. So, um, but um, but just again, we do have to get ruthless. I think about about um, setting up priorities in our life and just following those because today's world is so cluttered. It's so cluttered um, with good things. Again, yeah. uh, my son's in soccer academy. He's a good, very good little player. And but oh my gosh, like if I let it, that would fill up every every square inch of our lives Um, and it's just like is it a good thing yeah is it the best thing no it's not (laughs) and so anyway so just i think i think we need to encourage one another to just yeah to just just to really pursue the things that are best uh, for us you know things we're called to and just to to let the other things go
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great. I think that's a great way way to end it. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, AJ, for for being with us. We really appreciate appreciate your time.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah.